Father, I thank you that I've sent your Spirit in this place already this morning. And we, your people, have worshipped you. But now it's my turn. And I don't want to ever stand before your people and think that it's in me to do it. I need you. I need your Spirit to wash over me and give me the clarity of thought and mind to speak words directed by your Spirit. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to speak out of my own wisdom, but only by your Spirit. And so, Lord, I want to come before you totally empty, without any kind of credential, without any kind of experience, no education, nothing prepares me to be here except your call, your anointing, and your spirit. So such as I am, at best an empty vessel, I offer myself to you. Would you fill me up with everything that you are so that the words that I speak in the next few minutes come from you and you alone for the sake of your people, for the sake of your glory. For it's in your name I pray it. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. Excuse me, verse 3. Paul's writing. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. If there is a single thread in the tapestry of everything that it is to be Christian, that someone could pull and unravel the whole thing, it would be the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin that holds all of Christian theology together. The thing that makes it make sense. It's the thing that is the foundation for every other belief. Remove that single concept and everything associated with Christianity falls apart. In fact, the entire movement collapses into the realm of ancient mythology. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was just an ordinary man, like any other ordinary man. 
There's nothing particularly special about Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead. And that means that everything he said about himself and everything he said about God was a lie. He was not the way, the truth, or the life. He was not the bread of life, the living water, the light of the world. He was not the gate through which any person could enter and find life. In fact, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no hope for those who trust in Jesus. There's no real salvation found in his name. All of those things rest on the fact that Jesus said these things, died, and then came back from the dead. Pull the thread of the resurrection and everything else unravels. But on the other hand, if you establish the resurrection of Jesus as an historical fact, then you have to admit, Jesus ain't no ordinary man. In fact, if you establish that the resurrection actually took place as an event in history, what that means is that everything Jesus said about himself is true. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. And he proved it with his own resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to come to God unless they pass through Jesus. He is at the right hand of the king of the universe, and the only way to accept death, escape death, and pass into life is to deal with Jesus. Jesus died and came back. And God has made Jesus Lord of everything. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in human history. In fact, it is the event so split time into two parts. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. You say, Mark, how do you know? How can you be sure? After all, isn't this all just religious mythology? Isn't it just your opinion and your belief versus his opinion and his belief and my opinion and my belief? Aren't all religions just basically alike? No. They're not. Only Christianity among all world religions invites you to come and examine the fact. In fact, only Christianity lays out facts to be examined. Look at Christianity historically, archaeologically, scientifically, medically, any way you want to, and Christianity holds up. It sustains close scrutiny. The story hangs tight. There is more evidence inside the Bible and outside of the Bible for the death and the resurrection of Jesus than there is for the death of Julius Caesar. 
All that story about Brutus and Cassius and the conspiracy to assassinate Julius Caesar comes from one source. We have all these sources inside the New Testament plus nine separate testimonies of people outside of Christianity. Guys like Joseph Jewish Talmud all agree Jesus died and then something happened. In fact, there is more evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the existence of Alexander the Great. It is attested. It is proven historically. This morning I want to present to you evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I want to present you four lines of evidence, each one beginning with the letter E because it's Easter and I am a preacher and I like these things. Now, I want to be honest, I, I didn't come up with this. This is not original Mark Stagg material. I've been studying and presenting this kind of stuff, and all this comes from Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Get the book, read it, it's worth it. The first line of evidence, the first thing I want to say is, E, there was an execution. There has to be a death before there could be a resurrection, right? Looking in our text, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The fact that Jesus Christ was crucified under the order of Pontius Pilate is one of the most historically reliable facts in all of history. Again, besides the overwhelming biblical evidence to that fact, there are nine sources outside of the Bible that corroborate. Josephus was a Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. He wrote about the Jewish rebellions and the Jewish wars and the whole Masada thing. It all comes from Josephus. He states that Jesus was executed by crucifixion. Lucinius and Suetonius were both Romans historians. They talk about Jesus being crucified. The Jewish Talmud talks about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified by the order of Pontius Pilate. He died for sins. Some would say, well, well isn't it possible that Jesus was crucified, but he survived? That, that the Romans took him down too early, that the execution was botched, that somehow they made a mistake, and he survived being crucified. Lately, I've heard this account on Facebook. Some preacher stood in front of his church and said, Jesus did not die on the cross. He swooned. This is a theory that's been circulating for about 237 years called the swoon theory. It proposes that Jesus survived crucifixion. He fainted. He slipped into a coma. They thought he was dead, took him down off the cross, and when they put him in the tomb... After three days, he woke up. Isn't that special? He unwrapped the bindings on himself. He got up, and after having been pierced through his hands and his feet, he somehow found a way to roll the stone away from the tomb from the inside. 
scared the guards that were there to protect the tomb. This half-dead man scared Roman soldiers away. And then on nail-pierced feet, walked about two and a half miles back into town to find his disciples and convince them that he was the risen Lord. There's so many problems with that theory. Number one, Jesus could not survive a crucifixion. The Romans were good at crucifying people. They carried out millions of crucifixions. There is not a single report of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. None. In fact, Roman law said that if a soldier allowed a convicted criminal to escape, they had to take his place. They would not allow a crucifixion to be botched. There was a squad of soldiers set to guard the tomb. How did this half-dead man just recently scourged and crucified overpower a squad of heavily armed soldiers? Again, Jesus had been nailed by his hands and feet. How could he roll the stone away from the inside of the tomb? There's nothing to grab onto on the inside. They only find the corners on the outside. And then his hands had been pierced. How are you going to grab hold? And how are you going to walk back into the city? Jesus woke up from a swoon. Where did he go afterwards? We have all kinds of historical records of the life of Jesus up until the point that he was crucified. So he was crucified, woke up, and went into hiding? Why wouldn't he continue to give leadership to this movement he started? And then don't forget the matter of the spear in his side. That's the thing that really ends this whole swoon theory. John chapter 19 verse 31 says, Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The significance of that, breaking the legs, y'all understand that? When a man is crucified, the muscles in his chest paralyze. They, they stretch out and they get to the point where you can inhale, but you can't exhale unless you stand on something to blow out. That nail through the feet was to give the crucified man something to stand on so he could keep breathing. And you died when you got to the point that you were too tired to stand on the nail driven through your feet. So they would break the legs, and when they broke the legs, you couldn't stand anymore, so you'd suffocate. Verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. When they came to Jesus, they didn't just assume he was dead. They made sure he was dead. The soldier took a spear and stabbed Jesus through the ribs, between the ribs, through his lung and heart. Any of you guys hunters? If you get your deer between the lung and the heart, what have you got? A dead deer. 
1986, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article looking at all of the facts surrounding the crucifixion and death of Jesus. The article detailed the, the wounds inflicted on Jesus and confirms medically the effects that would, it would have had on him. Addressing the, the flow of blood and water from the spear wound, the journal says that after death, blood pooling inside the chamber of the heart and the pericardium would separate into serum, which would be clear, and whole blood. The spear thrust would have released first a flow of clear serum, followed by a flow of dark blood. The article concludes this way. Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and the heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. There's no doubt Jesus died on the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross is irrefutable in history. It's established by credible historical accounts both inside and outside the Bible. But if it's certain that Jesus died on the cross, where do we get the legends of him rising from the dead? It takes us to the second line of evidence. We have early. It takes time to build a legend. For example, take the legend that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. Have you heard that story before? Sure you have. Did it actually happen? No. Never happened. There is no historical evidence that George Washington ever chopped down the cherry tree. In fact, we know exactly where it came from. The story began, oh, I, I skipped something. That story could not have begun circulating during the lifetime of George Washington. I mean, it happened when he was six years old, supposedly, but during his lifetime, no one ever heard that because if it happened while he was alive, you could go up to him and say, hey, did you really chop down a cherry tree? No, nah, I never did that. It also couldn't have happened at, during the lifetime of anyone who actually knew George Washington, right? or his children, grandchildren, it couldn't have been circulated within the period of time while he was alive and there were eyewitnesses to his life. Sociologists say that it takes a minimum of three generations for a legend to be adopted as being factual. Now, the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree was first published in a biography in 1806. That's where it started. So if this story of the resurrection of Jesus is just a legend created by his disciples to explain why they have faith, when did it emerge? If it is not more than a legend, there has to be a period of development. There has to be a time where that legend began and grew and took root and anthropologists say it would take something like 200 to 300 years 
after the fact that Jesus was crucified for this legend to take hold. Is everybody with me? Because I kind of botched that. Y'all following me? In fact, we can trace the development of this principle, this teaching inside the church with a great degree of accuracy. Look back at our text. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And it says, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. That he wrote, raised, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And what we have here is a creed. It's a statement of faith that Christians would memorize and repeat and say together as part of worship. It's an element of their shared faith. Now, this creed appears in a text, and we can date that text. We know very closely when this book of 1 Corinthians was written. It was written about 35 years after the crucifixion. That's an incredibly brief time if it's just going to be a legend. For example, to bring a little bit of perspective, the first Star Wars movie was released 40 years ago. And I was there. I saw it. Maybe not opening day, but within the first week, I was there when I saw Luke Skywalker for the first time. Okay? Now, I'm alive 40 years later, and I can testify to the fact I was there. Right? Now, if you take something like the resurrection of Jesus, there are people who were alive when Paul wrote this and they could say, yes, I was there, or no, it didn't happen that way. All right? You can't start a false legend when you have eyewitnesses on the scene. Take a closer look. The verse says, for what I received, I passed on to you. I passed it on to you. That's past tense. So this is not new material. Paul already told them this. He's reminding them of what they already know. So we have to predate that before 35 years ago. It must have been on his first visit when he established that church in Corinth. He gave them the creed. And we know that he first visited Corinth five years before he wrote this volume down. And so now we're just 30 years from the cross. But look again. Paul says, I received this. Someone had to give Paul the creed before he could pass it on to them, right? He didn't just make it up. Someone told him. When did he receive it? Best evidence is Paul received this creed when he was in Antioch. As he was on that journey, there to arrest Christians. He was converted and he stayed there about one year after the crucifixion. In fact, the story of the resurrection began almost immediately after Jesus was crucified. There's no time for a legend to gradually grow and become accepted as fact. In fact, there is not a period of time in the history of Christianity when the resurrection of Jesus is missing from the tradition. 
The very first sermon preached by an apostle is preserved for us in the book of Acts. They were preaching on the day of Pentecost, which is 40 days after Easter, less than a month and a half. And Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs through which God did through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it's impossible. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This was not a legend that grew. It's a fact that was testified to. Amen? Lines of evidence. You have the execution. Their stories were reported early. Then you have an empty tomb. Everyone who was there agreed something happened to Jesus. The body was placed into a tomb, and then the tomb was empty. The Romans knew the tomb was empty. The Jews knew the tomb was empty. The disciples knew the tomb was empty. The question is, how did it get empty? Now just place yourself in, in the shoes of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They have just dealt with a major pain in the neck by getting rid of Jesus of Nazareth, right? He was a thorn in their side. They were fed up and frustrated, and they, they killed him. The last thing they wanted was a rumor that now he's back. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, the next day, the day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give an order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This deception will be worse than the last. So they had soldiers guarding the tomb. And when the rumor started that Jesus had risen from the dead, all they would have to do is go to the tomb. I mean, the disciples are out in the streets proclaiming that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. All they'd have to do is go to the place where he was buried. And they knew the place where he was buried, they had stationed soldiers there, right? All they'd have to do is bring out the body. He's not risen from the dead. Here he is. See? He's still dead. We have the body. We know he's still dead. They never did that. The Romans never did that. No one could do that. No one ever produced the body because everyone agrees the tomb is empty. But the disciples had no motive to steal the body. They had no means to steal the body. They had no opportunity to steal the body. The body was gone. What happened? Lines of evidence. You have the execution. You have the early stories. You have the empty tomb. And you have eyewitnesses. 
1 Corinthians 16, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I received what I passed on to you as a first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. What we have here is an account of more than 515 eyewitnesses to the fact that after the crucifixion, Jesus was alive. And there are more than just these 515, because we know Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb. Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. But verse 7, I think, is especially compelling because it says Jesus appeared to James. This was Jesus' half-brother. And we know for a fact that while Jesus was ministering in, on earth and doing his thing, James did not believe Jesus. James was a skeptic. James was a doubter. John 7, 5 says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Yet, after the resurrection, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, one of the pillars of the first century church. What happened? Something changed James's mind. And what changed James's mind was he knew Jesus died, and he met Jesus alive. Jesus appeared to James after the cross, and that gave him all the proof he needed to go from skeptic to believer. And then there's this reference to more than 500 people seeing Jesus at the same time. 500 people who will agree, we saw him. What other historical event is so well documented that 500 people, most of whom are still alive, and when Paul wrote this, he could say, go talk to them. They'll tell you. They will answer this question. I am sure that they will confirm what I'm saying. Any one of them could have stood up and denied the story. Not one did. In fact, no one ever recanted their testimony. Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Never changed the story. Andrew debated with a proconsul in, in the area of Greece, Macedonia, and this proconsul tried to convince Andrew to forsake Christianity so he wouldn't have to torture him, wouldn't have to execute him. But when that didn't work, he decided to give Andrew the full treatment. He was scourged and then tied to a cross rather than being nailed to it so that he would suffer for longer. Andrew lived for two days on the cross, during which time he continuously preached the resurrection of Jesus to those passing by. He never changed his story. Bartholomew was skinned alive and then beheaded. He never changed his story. Thomas was run through with a spear. Never changed his story. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was once a skeptic, lived to be 94 years old as a old man, an angry crowd dragged him outside of town and started beating him. They eventually killed him by knocking him in the head with a club. 
He never changed his story. I saw Jesus alive. They lived lives of poverty and deprivation and sacrifice. They died painful deaths, yet not one of them recanted. Not one of them said, you know what, we made it all up. Not one of them said, maybe I was mistaken. I don't know if I really saw him or not. They died with this testimony. I know Jesus is alive. I saw him myself. So what? Does it matter? Is it important today whether or not Jesus came out of that tomb alive? If he died and he stayed dead, then I guess it doesn't matter because it's all a lie anyway. But if he died and rose again, then Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the only way to life, abundant and eternal, and that no one comes to God except through Jesus. Less than two years after this event, the apostles were called before the Sanhedrin who threatened them and said, we don't want you teaching in this name ever again. The apostles answered the Sanhedrin and said, you judge for yourselves of his right to obey men rather than God. But we are convinced salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If Jesus died and then came back from the tomb, that is the most important event for you. Let's pray. Tim, would you voice a prayer for us, sir?